This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, as you heard, my talk is called The Moony and the Moonlight. And um, as someone I was driving here with said, the only um, understanding of the, of the word moony was something to do with trousers down. <laughs> I thought I'd just make clear that it's um, about the word. It's an Indian word. I'm not quite sure whether it's Pali or Sanskrit or perhaps both. But anyway, it means sage or wise one. So yes, the moony and the moonlight. So tomorrow, as you've already heard, is the full moon in May. And uh, this is an auspicious date for Buddhists around the world. So the full moon, when it happens, or when we can see it, is awesomely beautiful, isn't it, on a clear night. And it has a special symbolism in Buddhism. In in ancient India, um, time was marked with a lunar calendar, not a solar one. And... There were certain rituals that people did on new moon nights, but uh, particularly the, the main gatherings happened on full moon nights. Perhaps for practical reasons, there was more light to gather by. Um, clearly those who lived outdoors would have had much more sense of that. Um, but above all, the full moon came to be associated with events in the life of the Buddha, and therefore acquired a certain significance. So some traditions even say that the Buddha was born, gained enlightenment and died on this same full moon in May. Other traditions say different things. But anyway, you hear sometimes in uh, the Sangha a certain amount of hyperbole about the full moon and um, how auspicious it is to practice beneath or that merit gained for Dharma practices on full moon nights multiplies enormously various things. I've personally never been quite convinced about this, uh, or a bit sceptical, you could say, uh, particularly about calculating spiritual merit. <coughs> so I decided to ask Sangharekshita, our teacher, what was symbolic or auspicious about full moon practices, if anything. And he said that the full moon was uh, significant in association with the Buddha's life, primarily. Um, but it wasn't of magical significance. Uh, any auspiciousness is more to do with, um, as he said, the, the events in the life of the Buddha, particularly his enlightenment. And if by reflecting on those events our faith is increased, or if we feel a deeper link to the tradition through doing a full moon ritual or something, then that's very positive. But um, actually the Buddha said that no day was any more auspicious than any other. Um, what's auspicious is the skillful action you perform or not, and the mental state behind it. We can't accumulate merit passively, apparently. So Sangharachita said there's nothing mystical about it. That would be against the spirit of the Buddha's teaching. I felt quite relieved to hear this somewhere. <coughs> he also pointed out that in the scriptures, the, the Buddha made a point of ridiculing some of the Brahmin practices about certain um, special religious significances on special dates and special activities. So, there we have it. Um, 
However, the moon and its cycles do affect us. It certainly can uplift us with its beauty, um, perhaps even encourage a sense of wonder in the universe on a, on a good night. But what I really like is the fact that Buddhists around the world will be marking um, the few days around this full moon in May, and I really like feeling connected to them. And uh, we had a lovely festival here yesterday. Some of you were probably at it, and... Uh, There'll be more in certain quarters tomorrow night. So I really love that sense of connectedness um, down the ages and across the world. Yeah, so if it helps us be more conscious of the Buddha's enlightenment, um, great. And if it evokes a sense of wonder and beauty in you, as it does in me, um, because that certainly propelled me onto the Buddha's path, the Buddha, an enlightened human being. So what happened 2,554 years ago tomorrow? Well, as we know, Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, discovered the path to ultimate freedom, or the middle way, the middle way between eternalism on the one hand and nihilism on the other, between a soul passing intact to another body, or to heaven, or oblivion at death, nothing more. So less metaphysically, we can see the Buddha's middle way as a path beyond the clutches of pain and pleasure. So as we grow spiritually, we continue, of course, to experience pain and pleasure, um, to enjoy the pleasure, nothing wrong with that. And, uh, but gradually we become less in, in their grip, the, uh, these two, the pain and pleasure, less attached to the pleasure and less averse to the pain, even just slightly. Um, And I was thinking that looking at Siddhartha's path to freedom, you could see it as a series of challenges with these, this pair, these two, pain and pleasure. Well, that's how I'm going to look at it tonight. And then look at how we might, how that might apply in our lives. So firstly, he overcame pleasure um, when he renounced his princely life and he left the people he loved. He overcame the desire to please people, um, particularly meet his father's expectations. He also conquered comfort um, by adjusting to the hard life on the open road. Apparently it wasn't easy for him. Some of the places he slept in unleashed tremendous fears. And also, um, in one account, apparently the first meal he ate from his begging bowl made him vomit. So, you know, it wasn't easy. He certainly uh, overcame attachment to pleasure. But he persisted, as we know. So then he overcame suffering, um, well, in many, many ways, but particularly the suffering of isolation and pain when he realized there was no teacher in the land that knew more than him. must have been a very particular moment. I can hardly really imagine it, but it must have been very particular. Um, Both his teacher's goals were to escape the world of sensation and perception via lofty meditative states. And their methods weren't so much wrong as limited. Well, they helped to train his mind, of course, but they they didn't go far enough. So he had that suffering of isolation uh, at that point. Where to go next? He also overcame resistance to pain uh, when he followed his ascetic practices these real austerity practices we've heard about, um, to the utmost degree, almost to death. 
So he ate virtually nothing, as we've heard, slept hardly at all, held his breath, so on. And he was influenced by that belief that if you can suppress the physical, if you're no longer a slave to the body, um, his mind would break free of suffering. That was the ethos he was laboring under. And he showed tremendous ability to rise above those pains. And then he overcame attachment to that painful method by giving it up when it proved to be a dead end. Um, so self-torture had been no more helpful than self-indulgence previously. So he renounced that path and learned from the humiliation of having um, gone down a wrong track, if you like. So then a turning point came, a famous turning point we probably all know about, when he remembered this spontaneously blissful experience he'd had as a child under a rose apple tree. And reflecting on it, he said to himself, why do I fear the joyful ease that meditation brings? And he realized that this joy wasn't the same as the kind of grasping desire that contracts experience. It was much freer than that. Um, And so at this point, he overcame the subtle fear of pleasure um, by understanding that it wasn't the pleasure itself, but the attachment to the pleasure that was the problem the attachment to the pleasure that obscures awareness. So then, as we know, the Buddha started to eat again. He started to nourish his body, breathe normally and various things. And at this point, he was deserted by his five companions. So then he was utterly alone. I imagine that pain was pretty acute. A very bleak time. Um, But he saw at that point that until then, his life had been about resisting the fact of suffering. Well, he was dedicated, in a way, to resisting the fact of suffering. But he'd gone about it by resisting happiness, resisting pleasure, through asceticism. But then, perhaps there was an alternative. And it occurred to him that freedom might be not so much a matter of resisting happiness, but of deepening it, allowing it to develop naturally, uh, without grabbing at it. So in a way, this is a, where there's a real leap of individuality. He resolved to be his own guide, learning directly from experience. So each of these experiences around pain and pleasure had to be overcome. And then they were put to the test. So the, the attack of Mara, who's a kind of Buddhist Satan-type figure, often seen as a personification of self-doubt, Um, and other things. But this um, attack of Mara was the pinnacle of Siddhartha's struggle to pass pass beyond the the, uh, trap of pleasure and pain, I'd say. After his enlightenment, one of the Buddha's names uh, became Tathagata, or Tathagata. Never know how to pronounce that. But that means one who speaks as he acts, and acts as he speaks. It's a wholly wholly integrated being. Um, And this counted for a lot during this famous encounter with Mara, um, just before he's enlightened. Because the more unified, the more integrated we are, the more unified our energies, the more we can resist temptation, obviously. Um, And Sangharakshita said about this, if you've got a traitor within that's going to cooperate with a traitor without, uh, you're in a difficult position. However, Siddhartha no longer had any traitors within, it seems. No desire to grasp or reject anything. Total equanimity at this point. 
So there he is, he's seated beneath the Bodhi tree, conscious that he's poised on the threshold of something. Perhaps he doesn't know what, but he's resolute. He has supreme confidence. So then Mara's armies hurl their weapons and his daughters dance as seductively as they can, but to no avail, no success. And according again to Sangharachita, the Buddha's victory wasn't so much a result of a fight on Mara's own terms. He defeated Mara through the sheer excellence of his moral and spiritual qualities. Or we could see it another way. He was unshakable because Mara's realm is the realm of sensuous desire, our everyday world, and uh, where we're easily tempted. Whereas the Buddha-to-be was inhabiting another plane of existence, you could say. He was absorbed in meditative state, um, what's, what's usually called the, the realm of archetypal form. So he was just really somewhere else, somewhere unreachable, um, and thus, thus protected from self-doubt, protected from Mara. So unlike Siddhartha, alas, many of us, most of us perhaps, don't spend enough time in this realm of archetypal form. Most of us are steeped in the realm of sensuous desire. Now, I'm not making any claims about you, but generally speaking, most of us spend much of our time in that realm. I was in, uh, in California a few years ago and on a camping trip, and we went to hear the Zen abbot Norman Fisher speak. And one point in his talk still stays with me today. It's still kind of reverberating. He said, if we spend our time avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, however subtly, we consign ourselves to being eternal victims. Victims because we're at the mercy of whatever life brings us. So the path of hedonism, of pursuing only pleasure, denies the facts of life, doesn't it? Well, it separates us from what's really happening. Um, so we're at the victims of our craving because that strategy can't succeed. We can't control what happens to us. We know that. We just can't control it, much as we try. So this eternal victims uh, phrase from Norman Fish has really stayed with me and it kind of took the edge off the pleasure of that Californian trip. <laughs> but uh, I think it was a very helpful point. So we know that both pleasure and pain will come our way, daily, minute by minute. We know too that we can't control our life. Things seldom turn out as we'd hoped. Um, but the wisdom is learning to accept that, isn't it? Learning to handle it at least, and seeing it for what it is. So Buddhism begins with the acknowledgement of pain. That's the first noble truth. Um, that life, not that life's always painful, but that life doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. And yet this grasping at pleasure and resisting or pushing out pain is so ingrained in us that, I don't know, it seems to me that it's almost impossible to be free from it. It's like some sort of hovering butterfly dance that's never still. It seems to fascinate at least my mind, minute by minute. All the time it's kind of there, drawing me in trying to avoid the things I think won't bring pleasure. And it eats up so much energy. So yes, we need to quieten and gradually still that push-pull, that push-pull of pleasure, pleasure-pain. 
And the more I attempt to pacify this in my mind, the more I notice how much of a grip it's got, and the more amazing it seems, the Buddha's achievement. So in the story we heard earlier with King Ajatasattu, um, he was opened up by this ethereal beauty of the full moon and yearned for something meaningful, didn't he? And then he set off in full pomp with his ladies and his um, royal elephant and so on. And it seems a bit sad that he needs to do that. Almost like this protective lair to shore up his identity and his confidence. And so when he has to travel that last stretch alone, on foot, his fears run riot, don't they? He's just a normal person now. And so there he is in the dark forest, which I see as a bit like the depths beyond the comfort that we know. And I think we can do something similar. It reminds me of going on retreat and taking numerous things just in case. <laughs> so that sense of silence and simplicity can keep, seem quite scary, um, as if we're stripped bare. I remember various solitary retreats taking far too many things, books and music and drawing materials and tasty treats and other comforting items I won't list. <laughs> One friend of mine always takes his own fluffy pillow on retreat, uh, <laughs> while others convince themselves that texting on retreat isn't really out of silence. <laughs> it's not really a distraction. <laughs> so in, these, in themselves, these things aren't unskillful, but it's not exactly the simple life, is it? And I think it's also worth questioning why. What are we clinging to? What do we hope to protect ourselves from? Certainly it's a question I ask myself as I squeeze another thing in the suitcase. <laughs> So when Ajatasattu reached the grove, he responded really strongly to the atmosphere and the presence of the meditators. He felt inspired. You could say he had a bit of vision. He certainly saw the possibility of a more peaceful way of being. And then he discusses the possibilities of spiritual life with the Buddha. And he's receptive. The teachings certainly have an impact, don't they? But then he quickly backs off. So his yes to what the Buddha was offering followed quickly by a no isn't it and then he ends up saying gotta go now lots to do <laughs> so it seems really modern that <laughs> and the buddha afterwards tells the monks that the weight of his his past hangs heavy on him and it's mo- preventing him moving forward into greater freedom so i imagine it's also a pattern we might be familiar with we can get carried away about with the beauty and the meaning of a certain experience or a wonderful ritual or meditation or whatever. And afterwards our habits kick in. We feel a bit dragged back or hindered or hampered in some way. Uh, perhaps you see the gap between our aspiration and daily life. <laughs> our actual experience can be quite sobering, can't it? Even painful. Certainly I think that. Perhaps we fear like the king, that we've got too much holding us back. Hopefully not murder on our conscience, but usually, certainly with me, there's something niggling away at the conscience, something uncomfortable to sit with. I was thinking it's important not to identify with any feelings of kind of impotence or stuckness that can arise at that point. Crucial to see that if we feel hindered or held back, well, we can change that. It might be slow. Uh, But we have choice. 
Ajatasattu had choice too, but he was very much invested in his role as king, in his sense of power, I suppose, in his comfort. So yes, choice. All the time we're making choices, aren't we, in creating our lives anew. So we need to be mindful of those choices. I came across a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson that said, Sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. (laughs) But this highlights the role of ethics, doesn't it? Um, And especially when we sit down to meditate, we can see that banquet in all its glory. I can, anyway. (laughs) So it's our choices that shape us. And we need to take responsibility for them. Sure, we might not be as wise or wonderful as we wish, but we can change. We probably have changed. We can make choices that bring change and affirm that in ourselves and for each other in the things we've already changed. In some ways, I I quite relate to this story of Ajatasattu. I was first drawn to the Buddha's teaching because I wanted an inner life, whatever that was. Uh, At the time, in my mid-twenties, I had a very full outer life. Uh, I was enjoying living in London. I had lots of friends. I had a promising career, writing and editing on national newspapers. And it was stimulating and satisfying as far as it went at that time. But I also longed for more depth, more meaning. Um, In those days, I thought in terms of body, mind and spirit. And uh, I felt uneasy that I wasn't doing anything for my spirit. So very much outwardly happy, but inwardly I often felt quite inadequate. Um, like I was going to be found out or something. So my path for the past 22 years has been about developing inner resources, being able to be with myself more and more. Well, since then, it's changed, obviously, over time, and since then it's broadened out, and I'm probably more focused on altruism and building community. But, uh, yes, my aspiration soon wasn't just about making me more fulfilled but more what I can offer. In my early years of journalism, Fleet Street was probably a bit similar to the King's Court, I was thinking as well. Definitely that sense. Certainly not peaceful. Definitely competitive. Um, Perhaps quite stimulating, but not, well, seldom compassionate, let's, let's put it that way. So yes, I was feeling quite a few resonances with the King as I was thinking about this story. And in a sense, I feel I've been on a bit of a journey through the forest. Um, In some respects, anyway, away from familiar supports and also some of the constraints, some of the limitations of that worldly, tight life I led. And hopefully, at times, reaching a pace of more peace, more calm, more beauty, more compassion. I really like that the king had um, a companion as well, had a faithful friend, He wouldn't even have got as far as meeting the Buddha without Jivaka supporting him and uh, putting up with his pomp, (laughs) being compassionate about his foibles, if you like. We all need a friend like that, or or many, really. And this aspect definitely fits too, because friends are so crucial on the path, certainly have been in my my life. But that's another whole talk. (laughs) Yeah. So to return to the Buddha, there he is, 
under the Bodhi tree. And he was very much, I think, stepping forward into consciousness, away from that plain, plain pleasure axis, moving into consciousness, willing to sacrifice everything in pursuit of the truth. And luckily for us, the path he discovered, the middle way, um, well, it was previously a previously unimagined alternative. Um, but on a practical level, it, it meant finding a path between self-indulgence and self-mortification. But for us today, in considering the middle way, we can look for a, a balance between being motivated by ideals and motivated by pleasure. Um, Sangharachita put it, we're looking for a midpoint between the pleasure principle and the ideal principle. And I, I found this completely wonderful when I read this, actually. Very, very helpful. Because so I used to think the middle way was like traversing this impossible tightrope that I didn't even know where it was. And if I found it, I would never manage to stay on it more than a second. And um, you read tales of Tibetan yogis living in caves, wearing loincloths and eating nettles. And I just developing inner heat. And I just think, well, we're not even on the same path. You know, this isn't very easy to relate to. It might be inspiring, but it's not quite the same as relating to it. So, yeah, I personally wonder if we're on the same path. That would be way too idealistic for me. But actually, we might both be treading the middle way. And this is the bit I find so encouraging. Because we're looking for a midpoint between what is our own ideals and values and our own sense of something that supports us, that feels emotionally doable, if you want to put it in that language. Um, so the middle way for the likes of the Tibetan yogi Milarepa, it probably was a middle way for him. Judging by the songs that he wrote, he was tremendously happy. So that probably was a middle way for him. But it wouldn't have been a middle way for me. So it's not like it's this one thing that you find. Perhaps no one else had this view <laughs> and won't find this so exciting. But I just thought, actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ever-moving flow of something that is the middle way for you between the ideal principle and the pleasure principle. And so it's, it's not necessarily about extreme renunciation, nor is it about extreme uh, kind of mindless pleasure. It's more fluid it's not one hard and fast track. It's, it's something that we grow into and outgrow and it keeps moving as we change, as, our, as we refine ourselves, if you like. It'll keep shifting. Yeah, I'm fantastic, anyway. <laughs> suddenly, I, suddenly I could do it. It's what keeps the moment open. I, I think you could put it like that. Moving away from the safe and known into the unknown. Yeah. So finding the middle way often involves noticing both the pain and the pleasure, the beauty and the suffering. And I was thinking of uh, uh, an experience in my life where I, where I sort of felt them both very intensely and simultaneously. And what popped into my mind was um, when I assisted my sister giving birth. Well, one particular birth that was very difficult. Well, two, there were two, but there was one particularly where it was most intense. And it's tremendously moving, some of you will know, uh, witnessing life emerging, arising, coming into being. 
And both of uh, those births had a very strong impact on me. But for the parents, after the worries of a very difficult labour, the main experience seemed to be there was sort of joy and relief and uh, probably lots of natural highs that a a mother gets. Um, But as a witness, I had this key insight into how much suffering it involves, not just, you know, the agony of labour for mother and, in this case, child too, Um, but it was more about then is ushered in a lifetime of hopes and expectations and anxieties and attachments and disappointments. It just all sort of came to me in this hospital room. I kind of was quite bowled over by it, really. So reflecting on being alive, we need to stay open to the inevitability of suffering from cradle to grave, really, and the joy and the preciousness of human life. Um, And how to kind of that kind of real stretch of being open to both at once. Remembering that our human life is a unique opportunity, spiritual opportunity. All, all human beings have Buddha potential, the potential to awaken. On a perhaps a more kind of workaday example, I was thinking about working uh, with pleasure and pain, trying to find the middle way. Um, the example that came to me was um, the evaluation forms I give out at the end of my training courses. I, I'm a communication trainer, and uh, these can be quite challenging. <laughs> How to respond creatively to this pair, well, particularly the sister pair, which is um, praise and criticism. How to respond creatively. How not to get intoxicated with the praise and not to react to the criticism. I've made it one of the practices that I've developed over the years is not to read them for at least 24 hours. <laughs> because if I've given my all in a training, it's very, very hard not to, um, well, to be receptive to anything other than appreciation. So <laughs> I just now decided not to expect that of myself. So I just think, okay, leave it for 24 hours. And then, you know, it is a practice, but actually I really... Uh, try and be more balanced and try to see clearly. Of course I prefer the praise, but actually I try to question both types. Is it fair comment? What can I learn from these remarks? Actually I can learn just as much by not taking the praise at face value. You know, what is that more about them than me? Well, yes. What can I learn? Try to stay objective. Look for that middle way. <laughs> In trying to go beyond dualities, we could, I was thinking you just can see the middle way everywhere, in everything. That's what happens when you give a talk. <laughs> that's all you see for a while. Oh, yes, that's... So, um, yeah, I think playing with dualities can help us to value apparent contradictions and hopefully rise above them. I often try playing with uh, paradoxes in meditation. I imagine other people do, too. It can really um, kind of do something, <laughs> do something to you. So um, I often imagine my energy simultaneously rising up and also trying to sink down and have roots into the ground. And it kind of does something to you physically. It kind of does a wonderful stretch. And I really like that. That can really help me sort of be in my body. Another one I play with more on a feeling level is trying to evoke... Um, strength 
and gentleness or tenderness at the same time. So these are two qualities that really fascinate me about the Buddha. Um, I think of him as both gentle and mighty. And I can kind of do both. But what I've found is I can't do them both at the same time. Not yet. Um, but how to bring them together, or how to kind of, you know, it does something to my mind even thinking about it, which, in a helpful way. And I came across a Tibetan saying that if you know how to be gentle, you don't need strength, which seemed to really fit with that. You can't what does that mean? So these kinds of contradictions can be quite effective, I find. Um, and also, in small little ways, help us to face the big existential paradoxes. Because they can only be understood, in a sense, or kind of uh, approached by a, quite a shift in our understanding. So Shakyamuni, the golden Buddha figure I visualize, has his hands sitting in meditation, a bit like both of those. Um, his hands resting in his lap. And on top of that is a round black begging bowl. And uh, well the, the bowl probably has a range of associations. People talk about qualities like receptivity or even emptiness of ego. Um, but I was thinking about that bowl in a slightly different way. I was trying to imagine what it would actually feel like, what depth of faith would be required to rely just on a begging bowl. I mean, it's an amazing thought for someone who goes to Sainsbury's or whatever. Um, you know, what would it take just to allow your survival to rest on that, rest on other people's generosity? He entrusted his entire life to that. So I think it showed tremendous confidence in the path for himself and also for other people to respond to that because um, it's a two-way street other people to respect that path and to offer food and in this way he certainly experienced interconnectedness but also I was thinking it's significant that the bowl is on top of his hands in meditation mudra because um, it, it suggests a real link and to me anyway I just got down this track imagining that it was the depth of his meditation that enabled him to have that faith, have that confidence, to sort of have that leap of, of trust in benign forces in the universe in a way, as well as in the law of karma, I think. So even after Siddhartha decided to rely on his own tuition to go it alone, he still accepted help. He wasn't proud. He accepted help. He already understood that we're all connected. And he gratefully received piles of kusha grass from a certain farmer, and also particularly offerings of milk rice from uh, a young, local young woman called Sujata. So yes, he relied on, on a great number of things. I was thinking in this great task of trying to become more like the Buddha, I found it really valuable to think about images or contemplate images. So there's Buddha statues and paintings and uh, pictures of all types, all styles around the world. And they're in a way that each culture's attempt to convey the unconveyable, really, to depict the enlightenment experience. But what do they convey? 
And some of them are very stylized, some of them more naturalistic. Um, I was thinking that one quality that stands out for me in all the different figures I've seen um, is that they, almost all anyway, seem to show a remarkable sense of poise. Um, a sense of distilled energy. As if it's sort of gathered to a pitch, almost vibrating with life. Nothing wasted, nothing dispersed. Um, so they're poised, but also at ease, aren't they? Uh, not braced, not frozen. So like the, the classic images of a sphere, perfect sphere, um, resting on a smooth surface. It can go in any direction, but not, it's not compelled to. Just poised. I love that word, poised. So when I'm meditating, I try and emulate this sense of poise, both physically in my body and then also imagining in terms of um, emotions and the mind. So poise has, certainly in my mind, associations of potency and also of peace, peacefulness. A simplicity of mind that's very centred. So the expression on each of these various sculptures or paintings reveals something of the Buddha's inner experience. Well, obviously the craftsmanship varies hugely. Um, but this quality of poise and I think contentment um, on all levels, which I've seen on so, so many images, it suggests to me something very vital and complete. Um, and emulating this can lead somewhere towards that stillness uh, pointed at in the moonlit mangrove grove. So of a personal example here, I was remembering on my ordination retreat, I spent uh, six weeks in Tuscany, and the Italian night skies were almost always clear. In fact, they probably weren't, actually. I wrote that, and I think they probably weren't, but that's how I remember them. They were clear, beautiful, kind of midnight blue. Uh, and uh, I certainly remember the moon uh, casting a glorious light. So I was staying in this um, this monastery in a room without electricity so I was extra aware of it and being a night bird while my roommates were asleep <laughs> I was still up pacing around and most nights I'd lean over the balcony um, there was an open sided balcony and just gaze on the olive grove and it was deliciously silent the only thing you could hear was this sort of plink plink of frogs in the well otherwise it just was silent and uh, these olive trees covered in this sort of silvery moonlight. They've got a sort of silvery green tinge and there's this like a shimmer of quicksilver or something. I was never tired of drinking in this scene. Um, I felt really deeply still and satisfied, probably because of the awareness and stillness that had been building up over the weeks. So, yeah... These uh, experiences of stillness in my pyjamas were one of the highlights of that ordination retreat, actually, more than in the shrine, in many ways. So the uh, meditation master, Ajahn Chah, describes this kind of radiant stillness uh, very evocatively in a, a reading many of you will know, but I just love it. He says, try and be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come and drink at the pool. 
and you'll see clearly the nature of all things. You'll see many amazing things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So ultimately, this stillness and and awareness flowers into equanimity, or so we're told. Equanimity is the highest of the positive emotions. Equanimity has the flavor of great openness, isn't it? Great openness and emotional freedom. It's warm, serene, and balanced. It's not a detached indifference. It's very warm. When fully developed, there's no preference left at all. No, no seeing people in terms of their usefulness. Um, very much beyond that trap of pleasure and pain. Just real care and appreciation directed equally to everybody. Very beautiful way of relating to the world. And with equanimity we can be confident that nothing will unsettle us. We'll genuinely have a found a still point in this turning world. So equanimity is based on the insight that all beings are equal. They're all in the process of arising and passing away. Uh, all with the same potential for awakening. And sadly, this isn't how we usually see humanity or usually view one another, but it is how the Buddha perceives humankind. So, in conclusion, we've been exploring this typical ricochet between pleasure and pain and how that characterizes human life and how the Buddha overcame the grip of this pair and the challenge for us in facing, facing this pair. And we've been looking for the middle way, inspired by the qualities of poise, stillness and openness. A journey that in the Buddha's case blossomed under the Bodhi tree into equanimity. A way of being a quiver with love, illumined by pure vision. So if we could emulate that poise, that stillness, and that openness, we will become more Buddha-like. Then we too might experience the wonder and the beauty, that sense of possibility that the king glimpsed in the moonlit mango grove. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.